Hey, it's Alana, and here's another episode of Black and Yellow coming at ya. What's good, Black and Yellow Nation? Happy Pride. Happy June. It's great to be back in your ears once again. If you are new to the show and wondering just what the Black and Yellow Nation is, it's right here. It's this digital space that you are occupying right now. This is the digital space where we celebrate all things awesomely, inspiringly, and authentically Asian, and all things excellent, awe-inspiring, and thought-provokingly Black as fuck. Please subscribe to never miss an episode. I want to stay as connected with you fine folks as possible. And if you're a return listener, welcome back. It's great to be back in your ears once more. So I think this is a shock to literally nobody, but we are in a vastly different place than we were this time last year. This time last year, we were still deep in lockdown, learning about COVID-19 more and more each day, as well as working from home, probably drinking too much, starved for human interaction and touch, and praying, quite frankly, for a vaccine to get us out of this. And now that vaccine has arrived. 136 million Americans are getting or have been vaxxed, waxed, and are ready to make up for the lost year and for lost time that was 2020. But with all of the excitement about the world reopening, I cannot help but think about those individuals who are not out of the woods just yet. Those people who got COVID and survived but are living with its long-term effects, long-term effects that we are still learning about each day because COVID is a new and emerging disease or virus that we are still learning about and that has a, a lot of unanswered questions still surrounding it. So yes, the idea of normal, whatever that may mean to you at this point, is great, uh, maybe even comforting, but What about people who are creating their new normal every day? People who are figuring out what their new normal is because they are living with the effects of long COVID. People who are having to adjust to their new physical, mental, emotional realities after surviving their bouts with COVID-19. So I wanted to talk to people living with long COVID. I wanted to know about their experiences. I wanted to know how they're adjusting to their new realities. I wanted to know how their relationships with family, with friends, with our U.S. medical system, with their bodies, and with the greater world around them have changed. But most of all, I wanted to know how people who are not living with long COVID could be supportive, understanding, and compassionate to those who are living with long COVID. So... That is what this episode today is all about. It is part one of a two-part conversation that I think really needs to be had and that I think you guys are really going to enjoy. My guests today are are wonderfully vulnerable and keep it really real when detailing their experiences and what life has been like for them. They're great, and I really hope that you enjoy this interview, but first... Let's put our money where our mouth is, shall we? I'm going to do an abbreviated version of this because we do have a nice long conversation ahead of us. But if you are new to the show, the put your money where your mouth is section is all about uh, inspiring you, dear listeners, to engage in economic protests. Yes, the protests of 2020 are long behind us, but how you spend your money counts. Where you spend is a vote, and it's a vote with your dollars. And so never sleep on the importance of how you spend and where you spend. 
And if it is uh, a personal mission of yours to buy Black or buy Asian more often, this is a segment for you. Because it is June, aka Pride Month, uh, I'm going to be doing LGBTQIA plus focused Black and Asian companies. So let's get to it. So my Black-owned company is called A Tribe Called Queer. They are on Instagram and across other social platforms at A Tribe Called Queer. And Sabine Maxine created A Tribe Called Queer because she wanted to create everyday t-shirts that had an important message. Quote, I wanted people, specifically Black women and queer people of color, to wear my t-shirts and make a statement without having to say a word, Maxine said. People need to support Black queer brands every single day, not just during Pride, period, every single day, end quote. I could not agree with her more. Uh, she is a Black queer designer, so doing this kind of project during this time means a lot to Maxine. So A Tribe Called Queer sells t-shirts. I'm currently eyeballing a Black is Beautiful ringer tee, which is awesome and super vintage inspired sweatshirts and beanies and pins and candles so go scoop up a shirt and rock it today today tomorrow all through pride and beyond and i will drop a link to the website in show notes and moving on to our asian owned business i chose dragon beauty that is dragon with a u d r a g u n beauty at Dragon Beauty across all social platforms. Nikita Wynn, more commonly known as Nikita Dragon, on her YouTube channel is a Asian-American trans beauty vlogger who created her own cosmetics line designed for transgender people as well as beauty lovers of all shape, sizes, skin tones, and sexualities. These products are perfect for a glam or as Dragon puts it for, quote, unleashing the fantasy within. Who doesn't want to do that? You can literally find everything you need to create the face of your wildest dreams on her site. So whatever beat you want to rock for pride, however you want to make that face up, look to Dragon Beauty for all of your beauty needs. Scoop up the tools that you need and make that face happen. Okay, I will drop links to both of these businesses in show notes, but let me get to my two guests. They are completely awesome individuals. I think you're really going to love this conversation. My first guest is Fiona Lowenstein. She prefers the pronouns they or she. She's an award-winning independent journalist, producer, speaker, and consultant covering science, wellness, media, and more. They are also the founder and president of Body Politic, a grassroots health justice organization at the forefront of the patient-led long COVID movement. Fiona is a long COVID survivor. She contracted COVID-19 in March of 2020 and wrote one of the first accounts of what we now call long COVID in the New York Times that spring. Fiona has been covering COVID patient issues for publications like the New York Times, Vox, The Guardian, and Teen Vogue, as well as Elemental and the Columbia Journalism Review, among other platforms. They're the co-founder of Body Politics COVID-19 Support Group, which houses close to 11,000 members 
and it's one of the largest global private support groups for COVID patients and their caregivers. In addition to their work in health justice, Fiona leads a virtual community of independent journalists, the SUNY Tokings Center for Entrepreneurial Journalism, and is passionate about creating more support structures for independent journalists, creators, and freelance writers in media. I will drop links to all of her amazing writing in show notes. She's definitely a voice of our times and a voice that is going to keep rising in prominence and importance. So I think you guys should all check out her works. Again, they will be in show notes. And my other guest is Shamir Smith. Shamir Smith is a middle school teacher in Baltimore, Maryland, writer, public speaker, and thought leader who has recently appeared on MSNBC Live with Craig Melvin, PBS NewsHour, and featured in the Washington Post the New York Times, and Medium. In April, she was praised for her, quote, passionate testimony at Representative Anna Issue, Democrat out of California, after being the first Black woman to share her experiences with long COVID before Congress. Smith first became recognized as a patient-led advocate after she exposed the racist and sexist treatment she received when seeking medical care for COVID-19. Since June of 2020, she has used her social media platforms, engagement in grassroots COVID-19 support groups, including Body Politic and BIPOC Women Long COVID Long Hauler Support Group, and strong social media presences and strong media presences to raise awareness on the importance of Black voices in conversations and organizations on the prevention research and treatment for long COVID in urban communities. Recently, Dr. John Brooks, chief medical officer of the CDC, said her transparency about being, quote, a poor black disabled woman living with long COVID, end quote, resonated with him before announcing upcoming long COVID guidelines from the health agency. Talk about power. Anyone can be a revolution. Smith is now a Black long COVID patient consultant. I am thrilled to have both of these lovely individuals on the show. Welcome to the Black and Yellow podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. I appreciate being here with you. Thank you. As you know, we've, I feel like the three of us have been exchanging emails back and forth, making this, this uh, conversation happen. So I'm super happy that it's finally upon us. I've been very excited for it all week. Why don't we start out by having you both tell our audience uh, a little bit more about the work that you do? Can you start, Fiona? Yep. Sure. Uh, yeah, I can start. Um, so I am an independent journalist. Um, I am a writer. I have also worked as a TV producer. Um, for the past year, a lot of what I've been doing has been covering COVID patient issues and long COVID, which is the term we use to describe people who have long-term symptoms from COVID, typically those who have symptoms that last for, for more than a month. And of course they can last, you know, for, for much longer than that. And I'm sure we'll get into that as well. Um, and I'm also the founder and president of Body Politic. Um, and Body Politic is a grassroots health justice organization um, that is at the forefront of the patient-led long COVID 
advocacy movement. Um, so we have a support group, which has about 11,000 members, um, patients and caregivers with COVID. Um, we do advocacy work. Um, we have a blog. We have a social media accounts where we share, you know, issues related to COVID patient issues and other chronic illness and disability communities. Um, so that is a lot of what my work is focused on right now. Um, and then outside of that, I am also a speaker and a consultant, um, and I actually run a another virtual support group of sorts for independent <laughs> journalists like myself because we need all the support we can get. Um, yes. And I'm very passionate oh, about yeah. that as well. That's like a whole other thing, but. Yes, freelancers and independent creatives <laughs> getting the support they deserve. <laughs> Booked and busy. I love it. That's right. That's exactly what that is. Booked <laughs> and busy. <laughs> yep. And um, yeah, and as far as, you know, I'm concerned, um, I was a middle school teacher for five years. And um, I always tell the story of how in June of last year, um, I was leaving a hospital uh, trying once again to get treatment for um, what we now call long COVID. Um, I have been seeking treatment and trying to get good treatment and care uh, since March of last year. But June, that one day in June, it was a Friday, I'll never forget. I was driving in my car and I was crying and, and really still at that point preparing to die. And um, I, I went home and I took a really, really long you know nap because I was at that time my body was extremely fatigued. And I woke up and I was in the dark in this very room where I've spent the better part of a year trying to, um, you know, nurse myself since, you know, a lot of doctors still don't know yet how to treat us. And I got so mad, Alana. I got mm. so pissed. I got, sure. I turned into like a brown hulk, right? And I was just thinking to myself and I said, if this is happening to me, if, if, if I suspect that I have COVID and I've been to the hospital at that time about eight times, and if this is happening to me, then I am almost sure that this is not an isolated incident just for me. It is happening for other people. And I got so upset that um, I had lost the vision in my left eye by that time due to COVID. Um, and I got so mad that I just started to just in the dark, just type an email. I said, somebody is going to help me on this day, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I typed emails to uh, to local um, city council members. I typed emails to, to hospitals that I had been a patient of. I was talking to whomever would listen, whoever had eyes to see my email. Um, and then in the next couple of days, things started to change because those very politicians, um, my, my local city council member reached out to me and said, I want to help you. Um, get care. And then other council members reached out and I was able to secure appointments to uh, to get cataract surgery, which I was being denied. And so I always say that my advocacy, I was thrust into advocacy because I got really mad. I turned into what I never thought I would be. I turned into an angry black woman to get care. And um, while that sometimes carries a negative connotation, it ended up being the very best thing I could do. And um, I don't regret that. And so now what I like to do is I like to, um, to through writing and um, consulting as well, um, I like to, to be a voice for Black long COVID patients. It's my job and, and my goal to assure in some way that they receive adequate care, they receive adequate health information, and that they are supported, especially in the mental health um, you know, aspect of this, so that they don't feel alone because there's still no studies that track um, our progress with long COVID, we know that 
you know, at one point we were twice as likely to die as white people. And yet there is no reflective information that tells us the stories of black people with long COVID stories. So I, or long COVID experiences. So I hope to tell those stories more and to expose um, the health care industry and um, politicians who, who are not still taking this seriously. Yeah, I got to say, <clears throat> excuse me, I between reading all of your work, Fiona, and reading and watching videos of the work that you've been doing with your advocacy, Shamir, it's mm-hmm. it's really inspiring to see what can happen when someone puts pen to paper or finger to keyboard to give voice to something that is happening that not enough people are talking about. And I think when it comes to long COVID, it's a perfect example of that. Also, I love the idea of being an accidental advocate. Mm -hmm. I really, really love that idea. I think Mm -hmm. that that's where the best advocacy work comes from is when you have a personal stake in the work that you're doing. And absolutely co-op being an angry black woman. I 100% define myself as being loving (laughs) and aggressive, and I have no issues with that. Exactly. You know what I'm (laughs) saying? I am. I am. I've never been prouder of myself for getting this angry. So if I have to carry that on my chest, angry black Shamir or angry black. There you go. I will, because it's it's been able to garner me a lot of um, much needed attention in areas that a lot of us had either forgotten or weren't focusing on. Yeah, you are a history maker. We will get Mm -hmm. to that later on. Mm -hmm. Also, if Fiona Lowenstein's name seems familiar, you feel like, wait, I feel like I've read that name before over and over again. She has been all over The New York Times, The Guardian, Teen Vogue, Vox, body politic, obviously. So as this interview goes on, I will reference her work and I will also drop links to her articles in show notes because I think a lot of the reading or the writing, excuse me, Fiona, that you have done is incredibly important. Dare I say it's essential reading. I don't think I'm off base with that. Just gonna Thank say. you. I, I agree. Um, I think we should all be reading about COVID patient issues, COVID patient ally, <laughs> but we'll get yeah. to all of that. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, I want to start at the beginning, if that's okay with the both of you, Uh, with as much or as little detail as you feel comfortable with. Can you talk about your experience with COVID-19, contracting it all the way to uh, surviving it and now living with the lingering symptoms of long COVID? Yeah, sure. Um, It's a day I'll never forget. It was a Sunday, March 22nd. And um, I remember it so clearly because I was having in the afternoon, the early afternoon of that day, I was having a conversation, a virtual conversation with my therapist. And I was discussing with her how anxious I was about um, the fact that the Baltimore School District, as well as Maryland, had decided to to close down um, the state, the city, and the schools for the next two weeks. So I was discussing that with her because I had angst about what can I do for my students to support them while they're not in school. And so um, ironically, I had a sore throat and I was just like, what is going on? And later on, as the day progressed, I started to feel more and more like fatigued and just very unwell in my body. So the next day I called um, um, at that time, who was my um, internal medicine doctor? And I scheduled an appointment for the next day, that Tuesday. But that Monday, as I was reading a book and I had let, you know, at the time I was dating somebody and I let him know, I said, my back hurts really bad. And it felt like, um, if you all can imagine, it felt like someone poured hot liquid down my spine. And I didn't know that there was, you know, and I didn't know until recently that there was, there's a correlation between spinal damage and COVID. And so, you know, I call friends to, to check in with them because, you know, it's so funny. Immediately, I suspected that I had it. 
I just had, oh. had never felt anything like that before. And so I went to my uh, primary care doctor and he said that he thought that it was a sinus infection. He kind of begged me off and gave me some antibiotics and some Flonase and said, go on about your business and I can't mm. test you anyway. And then I went to um, another doctor who said the same thing. I went to a hospital the next day. I made a decision to uh, to separate physically from my partner um, because I wanted to assure that if I did have COVID, that I wasn't further exposing him. Mm. And so, you know, I went home, but then I felt like I couldn't breathe. And, and, and I had, you know, I was, I just felt really, really sick and unwell. I was having um, stomach issues at that time. And my vision started to get very blurry early on. So driving became almost impossible for me, but I still pushed through to drive to these hospitals. And on the very first hospital visit that I had, there were two doctors who were treating me and they were standing outside of my room and they were having a, I could hear them. And they said, man, you know, her white blood count is high. And at that time, I'm going to be honest, I was, I was pretty much ignorant to what that meant, but I knew it didn't sound good. And then they started to whisper because I guess they assumed that people would hear and I couldn't hear the whisper, but a nurse came in and he said, if you have COVID, just give it two weeks, you'll feel fine. And, and I was afraid because the doctor came back in after discussing my white blood count, which is in some cases, in most cases, a sign of a, an infection. He said, um, oh, you're fine. Go home, rest, give it two weeks. And I said, well, why are you telling me to give it two weeks if I'm fine, if my blood work is fine? Sure. He was like, oh, there's nothing more that we can do for you. And that's pretty much been my saga of trying to get care um, uh, for long COVID. I lost my vision um, at the end of April. I was I was told um, that it was dry eye, that it wasn't severe, that I did not have to worry. Um, I was uh, I was talked to like a child, very slowly, um, very um, I can't even describe it, but it, it just humiliated me to have have a doctor come to me and sit at my bedside and, and assure me that nothing was wrong while my body was breaking down Sure. Um, in the midst of losing my vision and, and just feeling like something bad had inhabited my body. I was being told that COVID patients don't experience neurological symptoms. Although I knew that to be untrue because, um, in my room, I experienced episodes of psychosis. I now have short-term memory loss. I just recently was diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment. And so I was trying to convince this doctor why I, I had to be um, hospitalized. I was complaining of a burning brain and not mm. knowing what was wrong on top of all the other issues that I faced. And this doctor, a male doctor, wanted to discuss with me his laundry list of pedigree his, in his education. Oh, I went to Johns Hopkins. I studied here. I studied there. Sir, I just need to know why my brain is burning. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. Yep. This is not about you, doc. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I suggested to that doctor, I said, I think I have occipital neuralgia because like myself and other body politic members and other long COVID members and other support groups, we've had to really do our own medical diagnoses, counselings, and support. We've had to provide that for ourselves and each other. So I started to think, I have occipital neuralgia. He argued with me for a week and was mm -hmm. like, that's not the case. However, when I got discharged from the hospital, his nurse came to me and guess what the paperwork said? 
What? A sip of neuralgia. <laughs> as so, you thought all along. As, as I suspected all along. Think. Right, exactly. And so I have been on a journey, a health journey. And, and, and now, you know, I haven't been able to work for a year. Um, and which I sorely miss. I miss teaching in the classroom. Um, but it is my responsibility to make people aware, especially Black people in, in lower income urban communities, aware that COVID just doesn't start at, at, a, in, at an infection and end in hospitalization or death. There's a middle ground there that we have got to discuss because it's causing us to... Um, it's, it's, it's going to cause uh, changes in the workforce, our ability yep. to work. If we can't work, we don't eat. We can't feed our families. And so that's why I've been thinking so much about how I can be a better advocate, how I can be a better consultant to some companies who want to research and find treatments um, for long COVID patients to not just stop with one particular group, but start to really be thinking about how can they engage and express their care and compassion and their research and treatment for black and brown people, people of color, period. Because the truth is, because uh, we need more health ed education, um, we've got to find creative and in innovative ways to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, and so yeah. that's that's a part of my job. So I took all of my crap and my illness and all of the things I experienced and I, I'm trying to turn it into something that can educate and motivate people to know that long COVID is not just a trending topic. It is a chronic illness that needs to be recognized. I bet your students are so proud of you. I just have to say that. They have expressed that on top of asking still after a year, when oh, you come back to class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. Yeah, so I miss them. <laughs> I miss them sorely. I, I can't even express to you how much I miss them, but they have expressed how proud they are of me. And that's what I care about most of all, you know? Love that. Yeah. Fiona, what about you? Yeah, um, so I, I similarly got sick in March 2020. I got sick on, on March 13th. Um, and I am pretty sure, I think I know who infected me. Um, my very close friend uh, and colleague came over to my house on March 10th. Um, this is before anything had shut down in New York City. I mean, we were just starting to hear about the virus hitting the U.S. Of course, now we know that it was here for a while before that. For a while. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, and so she came over for dinner. I mean, we... <laughs> We did everything but sleep together. Like <laughs> it was like we fucked, right. we like sat on the couch, we like cuddled and right. watched TV. Like, like seriously, like, it was like <laughs> with besties. With besties. Like, yes, yeah, like what you do with your bestie yes. when you hang out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just like, you know, now that I know that she had COVID, it's like, oh, I got I got the full viral load. Right. Like, I, you know what I mean? Um full bestie share on, yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes, totally, totally. Um, yeah, and 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 we were even like having because because she worked on body politic with me too. Um, which before the pandemic, we defined it as a queer feminist wellness collective, and we did a lot of events in New York City, and we had a blog, and we kind of looked at the intersections of wellness and social justice. So that's still a big kind of framework for what we're doing now. But um, awesome. yeah, yeah, it was very fun. Um, so we were like skyping with people. I mean, you know, talking, doing everything, and then she suddenly got very pale. She said, this is so weird, but I don't feel well, like very suddenly. And she was supposed to spend the night she was going to sleep over. And I was like, we both kind of had this moment of like, 
uh, okay, well, just in case you should go home right away, you know? And, and I think I did like a very light kind of Clorox wiping of like some of my counters, but the damage had been done. Um, three days later, I developed a headache and a fever. Um, and that was Friday, March 13th. Um, and then the following Saturday I developed a cough. Um, and then actually that Sunday I started to feel better. I was like, okay, maybe this was COVID. Maybe it wasn't, but if it was, Hey, I'm one of those young, healthy people who's just going to ride it out at home, like the flu. So I'm already feeling better. Things are going to be fine. And I'll say like, I was 26 when I got sick. I'm 27 now. I worked out six days a week. I didn't have any significant pre-existing health conditions. Um, I really thought that my role in the pandemic was going to be as an ally to the elderly and immune compromised. You know, I was like, I'm going to be on my bike delivering groceries and I'm going to be, you know, going out and volunteering at soup kitchens and all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, COVID just basically wiped me out. So um, I remember I had that good day on Sunday and then the following, you know, that night I woke up in the middle of the night with what I now realize is shortness of breath. Um, and I actually vomited. And I remember thinking like, this is bizarre because vomiting is not a part of COVID. Like mm -hmm. that's not a part of it because at the time we weren't hearing about any symptoms other than respiratory symptoms and fever. Um, but I was really struggling to breathe. And so the whole next day, the shortness of breath was getting worse and worse to the point where, you know, at first it was like a real struggle to walk to the bathroom. And then it was a struggle just to walk anywhere. And then it was a struggle to stand up. And then I couldn't, I found that I had trouble speaking. Um, so I was, you know, writing on a write-on wipe-off board to my partner. And even that was tiring me out. Unless I was lying in bed, just like focusing on breathing, it was very hard to breathe. Um, and luckily I have a primary care provider who has worked with me for several years. And I mentioned this because this is a huge privilege that many people don't have. And so she you know, she was obviously also very overwhelmed because she's based in New York City. She's a Medicaid and Medicare provider. So she's she's covering a lot of different populations here. Um, but we were in contact via telehealth. And she basically said, if your shortness of breath continues to worsen, you have to go to the ER. You have no other choice. Um, and I was really did not want to go because I did not want to expose myself to COVID if I didn't have it. And I was also scared of exposing other people to me on the way there. You know, I don't have a car. I live in New York City. I had no idea how to even get myself there. I couldn't walk at all. Um, you know, we ended up being told to to take a lift and just put all the windows down. And, you know, we like tipped 100%, told the driver what was up. You know, everyone had masks. But also I mentioned at the time, actually everyone did not have masks because we were not being told to mask yet because it was only March oh, 15th. right. Yeah, so that's we had t-shirts right. that we put around our faces just because we were like, this seems like the right thing to do. But I remember even once we got into the hospital, it took them a while to give us medical masks and put us in a separate room. And this was me and my partner. Um, and so I spent that first night in the ER. Um, I was given supplemental oxygen in the ER um, and I started to feel a little bit better. And then in the morning, they tested me for COVID. At the time, the only people who could get tested were people who were being hospitalized or people who had come into contact with someone else with a positive test result. Now, my friend who had gotten me sick, she was still not doing well. She was feeling very sick, but because she didn't have the extreme shortness of breath, she had other terrible symptoms, but because she didn't have the extreme shortness of breath, she couldn't get hospitalized. And so she couldn't get tested. She also didn't have a primary care provider that she was in touch with. So she was having a really hard time even getting like a telehealth appointment because this was March in New York City. Things were getting very intense very quickly. Um, 
So I spent the following day in the hospital, another night in the hospital, um, and I was released, I think, the following evening um, because my shortness of breath was getting better. I was able to like walk around the room a little bit without gasping for air, and my fever um, had gone away. Um, and I wanted to be discharged. They wanted to discharge me. You know, they said to me, like, the hospital is not the place to be right now because it was really getting overwhelmed by people. And I saw even like when I, you know, when they told me I could be discharged, they said, well, is there any way you can just give my room to someone else right now? Because, you know, there's this whole process you have to wait. And they were like, no, because I could see people in the hallway waiting to be brought into rooms. Um, and I was in, you know, I had been put even like I was in a surgical ward. I was in a ward that is not usually used for infectious diseases because already they were running out of space in these other areas. Um, right. So long story short, I, I was discharged on that, that Wednesday night. I came home. I remember I went into my room and I was like, okay, you know what? Let me, let me diffuse some lavender essential oil. Like I need to calm down. <laughs> and I opened up the bottle of essential oil and I was like, someone replaced this with water because I can't smell it at all. It has no smell. And no one was talking about this either at the time. To be honest, I had so much else going on that I was like, oh, okay, I can't smell whatever. I'll deal with that later. Um, sure. But it wasn't until I was actually well enough to have like a FaceTime conversation with my friend who had gotten me sick that we kind of started connecting the dots. And first of all, my positive COVID test really served as her positive COVID test because she was... She was never able to get tested a lot. You know, most people in who got sick in that early phase, we call ourselves the first waivers, were not able to get tests because there was such limited testing capacity. And that really affected their care later on because they had no proof of infection. Um, and, but the other thing that happened was, you know, we were just talking to each other. And so after I got out of the hospital, those initial symptoms had gone away, but there were new symptoms just suddenly popping up that hadn't been there before. So the gastrointestinal issues got really bad. I could not eat anything. I think I was eating like maybe one cracker a day because I was just, it was just like diarrhea and vomiting every time I ate. Um, and so I was losing weight. I'd already lost weight in that first week. I was already feeling fatigued and I felt like I was wasting away. You know, every morning I would get on the bathroom scale, it would be lower. And I was thinking, how am I ever going to get out of this if I can't, if I can't even digest normal food? Then I started to have, you know, really intense sinus pain and, and headaches, which I think now were migraines. And light sensitivity and eye pain and um, neurological issues like the short-term memory loss and just trouble finding words, or I would use the wrong word often in situations. Um, and just this very intense fatigue that was hitting kind of, you know, even two, three weeks after I was out of the hospital and this went on for months, every day at like three or 4 PM, I felt like I'd just been hit by a truck. I had to sit on the couch, close my eyes. Sometimes I couldn't even watch TV because the, the light and the sound was too much. Um, so talking to my friend, you know, a couple of days after getting out of the hospital was really validating because I, she was saying to me, oh my God, I'm having the worst GI issues. I can't eat anything. And I was like, me too. And then I was saying to her, I lost my sense of smell. And she said, I saw a Twitter thread from someone who said they lost their sense of smell. So we started doing, as Shimmy said, like our own little detective work, right? Just trying to figure out what is going on here. Who else is experiencing these symptoms? But we also realized that that experience of just having someone else who could say, yes, me too. Yes, I dealt with that too. No, you're not alone. No, you're not making this up was maybe the most important thing. So that was, you know, why we, why we set up the support group. And, and I'll just mention briefly that a couple of days after I got out of the hospital, I had posted on Instagram that I had tested positive for COVID because it seemed like the best way to kind of let everyone know and, you know, make sure people sure. who had been exposed to me knew to knew to get tested or, well, I guess they couldn't get tested at that time, but knew to watch for symptoms. Um, 
And I started hearing from, you know, it got a big response. People were very, very interested in asking a lot of questions. And it made me realize, you know what, maybe I should share this experience more. So I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times just about being young and being hospitalized at 26 and, you know, saying it seems like this is a bigger issue for young people than we may have realized. And after I wrote that piece, I started hearing from COVID patients all over the world. So they were DMing me on Instagram. They were emailing me, you know, people in uh, truly everywhere. A lot of people in Europe, a lot of people in New York City, wherever it had kind of hit hardest at that point. Um, And so I just was talking to them each individually on Instagram. And then I was like, what if I put them all together in an Instagram chat? And we all talked that way. And that was kind of the first iteration of this support group. Um, And it was in that chat that I started to notice that there were a lot of other young people who had actually had more mild initial cases than I had, but they weren't getting better. They were like, I only had a fever of 101, but I still have that fever four four weeks later. Or my shortness of breath was never extremely severe, but I'm still struggling with shortness of breath a month later. So that was what inspired me to write that second op-ed about COVID recoveries in, in early April, kind of saying, I don't think we realize that this is not a two to four week recovery time for a lot of people. Um, And that was, I think, you know, one of the first articles, if not the first article on what we now call long COVID in a big mainstream publication. And we had 2000 people sign up for the support group after that overnight, like within 24 hours. So that was the moment also where I was like, I'm not alone. Yes, (laughs) yes, totally. And and I believe the first article that you mentioned, it's called it was in the New York Times. It's called I'm 26 and was hospitalized for COVID. Correct. Yes, yes. Okay, I will drop a link to that in show notes. Y'all are going to have a lot of reading to do after these two episodes, (laughs) let me tell you. But actually, this is a great segue because I want to talk about our medical system and health experts for a second, if you both wouldn't mind. So, Shamir, you had a hard time getting a positive diagnosis, even though your body was telling you something is wrong here. You instinctually or intuitively knew something is not right. I have a friend who's going through who went through a very similar situation in terms of he not being able to get a positive test, but again, knowing that something was wrong. And then for you, excuse me, Fiona, you wrote a searingly honest article in The Guardian, basically uh, talking more or less about how faith in health experts and our medical system uh, has changed going through this experience. And I want to know from the both of you, How has your relationship with the medical system, quote unquote, health experts, how has it changed during this process and during this time? You know, it's changed in so many ways for me. You know, I'm going to be honest as a I'm going to say that and and, um, some people may understand this. You know, when you get when you're black and you are educated with Mm -hmm. a four year degree and you get a good job, right? And you establish your career in yourself. And then you get that card that says that you have access to whatever healthcare system that you signed up for. That is in itself a privilege, right? So I took myself to the hospital several times thinking to myself, I'm educated. I got the job. I got the card. I got Mm -hmm. my ID. I should have no problems getting care from doctors, right? And I was sadly mistaken. All the things as a black woman I'm taught to do and told to do in order to to reach a level of success in all aspects of life went out the window when I started to not only seek care 
for something, a new, you know, virus, a new condition. Sure. But also when I started to challenge what was being told to me, mm-hmm. I not only, ex- I didn't always accept. I think that's another thing, you know, as a black person, we don't oftentimes go to the doctor or hospital, but when we go, when we go, we do put a lot of faith in what the doctor says, right? And so blind I was- faith, Right, blind faith. And I was no different. I expected to get the care, to get some information. I didn't expect to be cured, but I at least expected in those early days, even through July, to, as we started to learn more about COVID and lingering symptoms, what we now call long COVID, I expected that I was due adequate, compassionate care. Sure, sure. Because you and did everything that we are told as Black people, specifically Black women. I checked every everything. box. Right, exactly, right. definitely. I checked every box. And I found out that none of that mattered for me. And so I think what I have, what I've gotten more from this is I've, 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 my faith in people have increased and my faith in doctors has decreased. Um, as Fiona mentioned about the second op-ed that she wrote in the New York Times, you know, I, it's a funny story because the day I read that piece, the day I read that piece was the day I got dumped by my, by my boyfriend. And it was the day I realized that I too wasn't alone. It was information. I think that article empowered me to say, I don't care about getting dumped. I don't care about what's happening right now. I need to know what's happening in my body. Mm-hmm. And join. And I wasn't going to join um, body politic because I made a very uh, unfair assumption um, that it would just be a bunch of white people in there. I was like, I'm not joining. I'm not joining this group because I don't want to be the only black girl in here, and I don't have anything to contribute. I don't. I just want to know how I can get better. Sure, I'm sure the, like a life of tokenism because yeah, for a lot of black yeah. people that's a thing. Yeah, inform that 100. percent Yeah, exactly. But I push past that. I push past that that wall I, I put up, and you know, I had rightfully so in some in some situations in some cases, and I found myself amongst people who were speaking my language. I'm talking about all of the symptoms that Fiona mentioned, plus more. I developed in the very early part of my illness, trigeminal neuralgia. So that means half of my face felt like it was frozen. I call myself two-faced a lot of times. I described that to doctors because I wanted them to have an accurate picture of what was happening. And so I found that we in body politic became doctors to each other. So when I would go to the doctor, I'd say, oh, I know this, 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 this. And they still would kind of look at me like they were crazy. And I I would go home and think, oh, time to change, new doctor. Because my friends, my new friends in body body politic were saying things that as I experimented and found, they were true. I became, we became, I was Dr. Shamir after coming out talking to the support group. (laughs) I put my, look, I gave my own self an MD behind my name because I was learning and gleaning so much from people, right? I was gleaning so much from them. But I also realized when I started to advocate for myself, I started to pour back into those people, right? I thought I didn't have a lot to contribute. And then I found out that as I was challenging these doctors, asking them questions, sharing my symptoms, sharing the fact that I just got real mad enough to start writing Google reviews about these doctors who dismissed me with no shame, no shame, right? 
and I came back and I would share pictures of what I said and I would share my experiences and people were starting to say, oh, well, I'll do the same thing. I'll challenge this. I'll do this. And so we were we were learning together. And so I do have a sense, you know, if I can say this, of PTSD when I go to hospitals and medical centers now, because I don't trust doctors as much. Mm-hmm. I don't trust that they have my best interest at heart. And um, after being talked to as if I wasn't a smart, capable woman, even in the face of being deathly ill, I no longer have time for doctors. And I know I still need them, but they are not as big a part of my life as they used to be. And that's why I'm advocating. That's why I'm going so hard, because people need to know how to access their own information if they can so that they can start to question what's, what doctors are saying sure. and, and to advocate for themselves. I could not agree more. And I think, you know, I've been thinking a lot lately about how there's so much kind of fear from the medical establishment or even just culturally, there is so much fear of a panicked patient and the idea that a patient who is panicked and Googling things or even write like all the jokes we have about, oh, if you stub your toe and look it up on WebMD, it'll tell you that you have to amputate your foot, right? Or something like that. Well, the truth is that a lot of people with difficult to diagnose conditions actually do find their diagnosis online and do a lot of that research themselves. And that is a big way that those of us who fall through the cracks of the medical establishment kind of empower ourselves. And, And I've been thinking about, you know, why is there that fear that, that fear that the doctor has to be the only one with the information and, you know, citizen science efforts or citizen healthcare efforts are so kind of frightening to us. And I think a lot of it comes from, well, what is the legacy and the history of all of this, right? For a long time, marginalized groups, whether it's, you know, black people or women or LGBTQ plus people have had their own community health care structures. I mean, even if we look at like, now I'm really getting into it and I wasn't history. Get into it. Go there, go there. The history of colonization, right? A lot of time it's European power coming in and saying, no, you can't see the healer that you've been seeing. You have to see a Red Cross nurse now or mm-hmm. something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And and if we look at kind of the legacy of, of different, you know, social justice movements, whether it's Black Power with Black Panthers setting up community health clinics, right? Or whether it's the women's health movement, feminist health movement, where who's going to teach you about your anatomy, not your white male gynecologist, right? right. Um, or even the HIV AIDS movement, which is where I think we've taken a lot of cues from, you know, no one was advocating for that population and, and they were dying and, and the, the general, you know, the president wouldn't even say the name AIDS, right? He wouldn't even talk about what was happening. So it kind of becomes up to you to provide that community care, to be doing your own research, et cetera. And so I think I, before this, I kind of knew all of that stuff cognitively. I will also say that, you know, as a as a queer and gender queer person and and someone who was socialized as a woman, I've definitely experienced some level of medical bias. And and I did have, you know, a few years ago, I had a, a fainting condition that I just could not seem to get diagnosed. And I had to go to a lot of different doctors because it was constantly people kind of making assumptions about my lifestyle and doing that self-blame thing, you know, of like, oh, well, maybe it's, you know, because you're not eating enough meat or maybe it's because you're drinking too much. And, you know, it turned out that it's actually something that's totally out of my control that I that sure. I can't really change with mm-hmm. lifestyle stuff. Um, but because we're women, it's like, oh, it's your problem. It's your exactly. fault. You're doing that's something exactly wrong because you were born. Is. 
Yeah, yep. Exactly. Yep. Mm -hmm. And even with body politic, like we would look a lot at also, you know, some of the fat phobia that exists in medicine. And, mm -hmm. you know, there were patients in the body politic support group who I spoke with who said, you know, this is not, you know, I'm, I'm fatter and plus size. And so this is not the first time that I've been kind of told that it's my fault, what I'm experiencing, or that I've been psychologized when I go to the doctor for a physical issue. Um, and so I think, you know, I had that whole framework, but I think on some level I felt like, okay, but when the shit really hits the fan and there's like a novel virus sure. and I can't breathe, like my doctors will know what to do. And the fact right. that the CDC symptom list took so long to be updated, it just made me kind of have to learn about and recognize that, you know, the scientific and medical establishments are slow moving. There needs to be a peer-reviewed study on patients losing their sense of smell in order for that to be listed as a symptom, right? Even if a million people are saying, I'm losing my sense of smell, there needs to be scientific proof. So I became very interested in community info sharing, and I think that's what we were doing in these support groups. And I'll also just say that, you know, body politic... Uh, I think we have a great support group and, you know, I, I, I love our support group, but we're definitely not the first support group for people with chronic illnesses or disabilities or novel viruses. Um, and so I think, you know, for a very long time, people who have been kind of left out of that mainstream health narrative or who have fallen through the gaps of the healthcare system have turned to one another and have formed groups like this, whether it was, you know, kind of in-person consciousness raising or community care or now virtual support groups where people can talk to one another. Um, so it's just strengthened my kind of similar to Shamir, it's really strengthened my faith in people and, and my belief that, you know, some of this fear and panic around people who are panicked is, is perhaps <laughs> not entirely fair. And I think a lot of that panic, that, that patient panic also comes from going to see a lot of different doctors and not being believed. I mean, there's nothing more sure. anxiety producing Absolutely. than that. Mm -hmm. I think Patty Smith said it best. People have the power. But uh, in, in terms of body politic, I found body politic because long COVID is so new and we're still learning about it every day. And body politic was one of the few support groups that I could find for this new and emerging virus. It was one of the only support groups that I can find that was out there for this. I think when you think about long term health uh, issues like a cancer or an MS or a fibromyalgia, things like that. These health conditions have been around for so long. There are support groups for them. There's a lot of community around them because long COVID is so new. It feels like we're, we're building in real time, right? Like we're trying Absolutely. to service and build everyone that we can in real time. So with that being said, we do have a growing amount of our population who are living with it and who deserve to be treated with empathy and compassion as they navigate this world which is new to them and new to their loved ones. Yeah. What do we need to keep in mind about long COVID and those that it affects? Um, I think it's so important. That's a really, really good question. Um, and I'm starting to just, you know, it's a question that I think about all the time, not just because people are asking, but because it's on my mind. You know, what's striking me now, like you just mentioned, there are a growing number of people who are now living with long COVID, which we now know is a chronic condition. And not only are they physically unwell, we are being thrust into a population that we never considered, which, which is the disabled population. Mm -hmm. um, 
as I spoke before Congress two weeks ago, I thought to myself, I said, I wonder, do people really believe that I'm disabled based upon the fact that I'm able to speak? I'm able to answer questions. I'm looking at the camera. I seem like everything is, is going well, um, but I'm disabled. My brain does not work as well as it did. My body feels broken on some days. Like, we have to consider that we, we are now talking to up to 30% of the population of people who have had COVID who now, who's com whose lives have completely changed mm -hmm. in such a, in such a, a fast way. Sure. You know, I think about the fact when you think about a year, a year for us, it seems like it's a long time, but when it's we not. think about the movement of long COVID and how things have started to change with the people um, and the people in the movements, it's kind of moved very fast, faster than a lot of other rare or chronic conditions. Um, sure. So people need to consider that this is so new for us. And also, I think that we and with this, you know, for me personally, um, it's so sad. But at the same time, it is a good thing for me, because even today I have a doctor's appointment later and. I already have on my computer pulled up a recent U.S. news article that I was featured in where John Brooks said, I resonate with what Shamir says. And I can, I'm carrying that as my certificate to say, this is real for me. Sure. This is real. And so, but I shouldn't have to do that. I shouldn't have to do that. So we need doctors and other community members who truly, truly believe what we say. And I'm not talking about believing what we say by just telling me. Anybody sure. can tell you, oh, I believe that you're sick. I, the, the primary care doctor I'm about to fire told me out <laughs> loud that he believed. He said, I believe that you do have long COVID. But he, 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 he made me think, he gaslit me by making me think that he recorded it on medical records, but he didn't. He fooled me. He pulled a got you on me. And so I need you, we need doctors who not only say it, but write it. Mm -hmm. Now- yeah, walk their talk for sure. Right, now I, I can't have access to disability benefits, money to pay bills, because I can't get the doctor who's treated me for almost a year to write, this woman cannot work. This woman has, 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 has uh, over the course of a year, has also gotten four other comorbid co co um, comorbidities and conditions on top of having long COVID. And so we need immediate support. We need for, um, and we need to be, we need to be thinking about how to disseminate this information to other communities, to marginalized communities, like Fiona said, because a lot of us still don't know. And a lot of us are scared to publicly say, um, I'm getting DMs now, whoo, so many, more than I can handle really, honestly. Um, of people, black people who are coming to me and saying, oh, I've had a migraine for six, every day for six months. Is this long COVID? Yeah, more than likely. Mm. But they don't know because there's no information. And like Fiona mentioned, there is a slow moving train that's moving, but it's not moving fast enough. We, yeah. need, we need guidance now. Employers need guidance. Um, um, Medical establishments, we desperately need those CDC guide, guidelines um, so that patients can use those to validate, especially patients like me who never tested positive 
for the virus or antibodies. Now there are, as you know, Fiona mentioned, there are studies and people who are proving this to be true, but we still have to wait and study and put people in groups and all this stuff. No, it's a, it's a, it's the truth. Believe me when I tell you that in March I got COVID. I need that to be believed mm-hmm. out of your mouth and mm-hmm. on paper. And I think yeah. that's going to be the key and the ticket for people to be able to to walk around this this world feeling heard, feeling seen, feeling validated, and also able to get their things taken care of. Does that yeah. make sense? A hundred percent. I could not agree more. I have to ask that sometimes because I do have this cognitive impairment. So as Fiona mentioned, I still struggle with memory loss and word association and making sure that what I'm saying is comprehensive and clear. So just wanted to say fully 100%. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that absolutely there's, there's just, there are long COVID clinics that have been set up there are huge wait lists at most of them, right? They also often have require patients to have a positive PCR test or a positive antibody test to get access. Those tests are both not 100% reliable. Actually, the antibody tests were mainly created based on testing older and mostly male and hospitalized patients. So uh, yeah, they're not going to work as well for some uh-huh. of the rest of us. Um, and, uh, and, and a lot of times also you don't realize you have long COVID until you're, you're months out of that initial infection. And I think that's another thing is as we see things start to reopen and there's this push to return to work, I think there's going to be a lot of people who are like, oh, it turns out that brain fog that I thought was quarantine brain fog or that general fatigue or whatever it is, is actually more debilitating than I realized. And I think, you know, in terms of compassion, I, I'm worried. I'm worried that right now everyone is just so eager to get back out there, see their loved ones, get back into the clubs, like go to the beach, which like, <laughs> listen, same, you know, it sounds fun. <laughs> I think Fiona's trying to get back into the club, y'all. <laughs> so, that's actually so ridiculous. I'm like, the last <laughs> person. But it makes sense because I was up in there before. <laughs> the club is just like, the club is just like my bedroom mirror right now. I'm just Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can put your freaking dress on right in that club, yep. girl. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But I just think there's this huge push, and you see all these articles about this, and they don't ever mention long COVID, almost never. And there's not this understanding that this is a health crisis and it will overwhelm healthcare systems. It is overwhelming healthcare systems. I mean, again, long wait lists, people can't get in to see doctors, that sort of thing. Um, But I also just feel like, you know, in addition to the wider, you know, awareness that long COVID exists and that people who have had COVID should monitor themselves for long-term symptoms, we also need people who are not COVID patients or who have recovered quickly to become what what we call COVID patient allies, right? So that means educating yourself on what long COVID is. And I think it also means understanding that, you know, this, the recovery process and the illness is nonlinear for a lot of people, right? There are ups and downs. There were weeks where I felt like myself. And then the next week I was back in bed having a crash. Um, And that's actually something a lot of people deal with. It's called post-exertional malaise. You do something, you exert yourself physically or mentally, and you feel worse the next day. Um, 
it's not something that shows up on medical tests all the time. Um, and, and that's because, right, sometimes you can't test positive for the virus because you're too far out or the yeah. test is not reliable. But it's also a lot of these issues that, that we share with, you know, the fibromyalgia community or the ME-CFS community or the chronic Lyme communities are just not things that show up on medical tests. Um, it's a multi-systemic virus, right? So a lot of the time I have conversations with people where I will mention, you know, I have friends who have lost their eyesight from COVID and people are like, what? No, it's just a lung thing. That seems really weird. You know, it's like, don't gaslight people for, you know, a symptom that exists in a symptom of the in a system of the body that you weren't aware is affected by COVID. Um, and I think also like, the mind body connection is very real. You know, I, I was a wellness practitioner before this. I totally believe in that. I meditate every day, but at the same time, you cannot think your way out of this, right? Yeah. You can have a positive mindset. You can, you know, do self-care, all of that stuff. You can sometimes improve your experience to some degree, but this is not a think yourself better type of situation. And I think people often think that, um, but yeah, I mean, now it's, you know, re-entering society and seeing long COVID, and chronic and other chronically ill and disabled people just ignored from that narrative. Um, but I think before that, it was like a lot of the conversations about quarantine. I mean, I didn't watch Tiger King. I didn't bake banana bread. Like <laughs> me neither. <laughs> right, <laughs> I right. bananas. I get. <laughs> it's just like there, you know, even there was an article about brain fog recently that was just all about quarantine brain fog. And it had like one very dismissive line about long COVID. And I see this brain fog thing even becoming like, you know, a little bit of a joke, right? Oh, none of us can remember anything. But they're there, you know, we have to acknowledge this population. We should acknowledge them regardless of how large they are. But we're also hearing that 10 to 30% of COVID infections can result in long COVID. I think it could be more than that because if you think of all of the people like Shamir who didn't get that initial test, they're not yeah, registered yeah. as COVID patients. So that's a huge population of people. And we should not be forcing those people to conform to the old normal. We should be creating a new normal that conforms to the needs of those people, I think. Yeah, yeah I, I agree 100% with what you just said. And if you can think back to the beginning of the pandemic, we were bombarded with the phrases of we're all in this together. Let's all help and support each yeah. other. And yeah. I agree with you with the vaccines rolling out, people feeling like, oh, let's get back to normal. Let's get back to life as, uh, as it was before. And mm -hmm. I found myself sitting here going, well, wait, if we're all in this together, let's actually all be in this together. We're not yeah. out of this yet. Yes. This yeah. is not over. Yeah. And I think that it's I think that we are gaslighting ourselves to think I've got the vaccination. I'm good to go. Airplanes, clubs, concerts, restaurants, bars, let's go hard. But actually, no, no. Mm -hmm. we're not there yet. I feel like I'm one of the few people who, even though I'm fully vaccinated, I'm like, I'm still not doing the going out thing. Like, Same. I don't trust this vaccination yeah. enough, yep. nor do I want to get back out in the world enough to um, possibly expose myself for other people. Yeah. Full stop. That's our show, guys. We're going to be back next week with part two of this episode. You don't want to miss it. Excuse me. We're going to be back with part two of this conversation. You do not want to miss it. Please tune in. Same great time and same great podcast platform next week. This is the Black and Yellow Podcast. If you want to find us on Instagram, we are there at Black and Yellow Podcast. You can also email us to say, hey, what's up? Or to shoot us a show idea that you think would be interesting. Podcast Black and Yellow at gmail.com. 
I am Alana Webster. However, on the social, they call me at Renegade of Fun. Go ahead and follow me so you uh, keep up with what I'm doing. And if you find yourself on Apple Podcasts, that's that purple um, small app icon that all iPhones come with, and you want to go ahead and subscribe to the show, please also leave a rate and review. That really helps to keep this little show of mine going. And until next time, I will talk to you later. One love and stay woke, guys. Bye.